Good morning. Some of you may be wondering, why have we been focusing recently in the book of Revelation? Uh, as Josh mentioned last week, we've been attempting to go through it, and it's taking a little bit of time. Uh, there's a couple reasons. One reason is I am assuming that not every one of you has this great burden to hear prophecy every week. And yet I know that there's some of you who wouldn't mind it every week. And we are going through and we're just enjoying this study. I believe the focus of the book of Revelation is two things. It's a revealing of Jesus Christ and it's a telling us of things that must shortly come to pass. This is based upon the first chapter of Revelation. We're living in interesting times. I, uh, I have felt many times that we must be almost in a stupor if we cannot see that Jesus is coming is sooner than it's ever been. And yet at the same time, the burdens that press down on us are heavier than they've ever been. And that's why I praise God for our Sabbath school lesson today. As we look today at probably a topic that oftentimes when I've heard presented, it's Christless. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but it's so packed with detective work. Figuring out this and figuring out that. And if you uh, like being a detective, you'll enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be going through and letting the Bible speak to us and, and, and comparing it with history. We're going to see some amazing things. But in the midst of this, Jesus is revealed in a phenomenal way. Because in what we see in the enemy, we know he's the opposite of who Christ is. And we're going to understand some things about Jesus, I hope, much better today. As we get started, do you mind just bowing your heads with me? Father, this morning as I endeavor to share from a book that's inspired by you. I ask for your Holy Spirit, for all of us, and for me. In Jesus' name, amen. In the late 1960s, there is a man, a Frenchman by the name of David, I think it's Steen. He became famous for this reason. He would put on his businessman clothes. He would go out and say, I've got some great paintings. I have some great paintings of famous painters. And they would normally go for two to four million dollars, but I've got a deal for you right now. You can get one for only $800,000. And that was just a, a sample. And, and people would know the name. And they'd look and say, that's fantastic. We'll, we'll, we'll put a down payment on it. Then he would take off his businessman clothes when he got home and he put on his painting clothes and he painted the painting himself actually quite talented. And then he would sell it, and there is a said to be over 400 of his forged paintings floating through. We found a little over 100. Uh, they were so, in fact, one of the reasons why there's so many is because um, dealers of art didn't want to admit that they didn't catch it. So they kind of just didn't want to admit anything, and so there is more out there. Uh, eventually he was caught, served many, many years, many, many years in jail. And uh, now he's out and he's painting, and this is one of his uh, paintings. It was a tribute to another painter, and he has his own name on it, and it's selling for a mere $3,800. So if any of you are interested, you can get a copy for that price. But the reason I'm bringing his name up is he was a masterpiece in making a fake. He was a masterpiece in making a fake. And Satan also has that gift. He is a masterpiece in making a fake. You know, um, we learned last week, I was, I was looking at the sermon from last week online, I'm so glad that we're actually able to do that, and um, how Satan has used various powers throughout time to attack God's church. I think we've seen that. We saw that in Revelation 12. There are two very unique powers in Revelation 13, and we're going to be looking at one today and then one three weeks from today, and we'll tie up one following message connected with that. There is an end-time battle over worship, and this first one that we're going to be looking at today, he actually 
imitates Christ in a very unique way. Um, he has the power to ultimately draw people's minds away from our Savior into something that is not real, something that is not genuine. And that's where our study will be. Revelation reveals some key opponents. Uh, we've looked at pagan Rome last week, Revelation chapter 12. Um, we'll be looking at a sea beast this week, and then we'll be looking at a land beast coming up before. Now, there are all kinds of names for them. There is the, there is the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Uh, that would be the sea beast or the leopard-like beast. There's all kinds of names for them. And there's the two-horned beast or the lamb-like beast or the land beast. I'm just calling these names just because one comes out of the sea, one comes out of the land. Um, with that being said, let's jump into our study today, a description of the sea beast. We're going to do some detective work here, and uh, there's going to be several different identifying marks. If you don't mind, open your Bibles with me now. Revelation chapter 13. We are just going to read through the first 10 verses. I have found that if one doesn't get the big picture, sometimes it's hard to get the big picture. That was a deep thought. So we're going to go ahead and just read through these 10 verses, get the big picture, and then the next two hours I'll just explain it, okay? That's it. You ready? Okay, here we go. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Fascinating passage. And yes, it would take two hours if we were going to completely break it down. I'm not going to do that. But we're going to look at several key identifying marks. I put scriptures on the screen. If you would like my notes, feel free to email me or tell me, and I'll try to remember, and I'll send them to you because sometimes it's easier to do it that way. It'll enable me to go somewhat faster. However, when we're studying the Bible, I'm a firm believer that we let the Bible interpret itself. And so there's a lot of information, and as we go through here is a few identifying marks. First, it's made up from Daniel 7 beast. You may not realize this, but if you go into Daniel chapter 7, it's a sister chapter in the Old Testament. Remember, oftentimes, to understand what's happening in Revelation, we have to go back to the Old Testament. There is a lion. There is a bear. There is a leopard. There is a, we call it a nondescript beast or an unusual beast that you find in Daniel chapter 7. Interesting in Revelation, John is looking back through time, and so instead of seeing a lion, a bear, and a leopard, he sees a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Just interesting. He's looking backwards. Um, those beasts, Daniel 7, 17 said, these great beasts which are four are four what? Kings which shall rise out of the earth. And verse 23 in that same chapter, Daniel 7, 23, calls them a kingdom, a fourth kingdom. It, this beast is coming up out of the sea. And this is the picture we saw, right? Revelation 17, 15 says, the water is which you saw, speaking about another place with water, but it also applies here, where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So this is a kingdom arising up in a highly populated area. 
The next point we saw is that there are seven heads and ten horns. Revelation chapter 17 talks about the same thing. We're not going to discuss it today. Okay, this is one of those points. There it is. You've got it. Hold on. Revelation 17 will come up at the rate I'm going next year. Okay? Uh, but we will be looking at this. The next point. Uh, the dragon gives it power, seat, and authority. Now, last week, uh, Josh spent quite a bit of time looking at the dragon, what was connected with it. Remember Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, the Bible just clearly says, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So very clearly says, okay, this is Satan. But when you look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, the dragon is trying to kill the child Jesus as soon as he was born. What power did Satan use? Pagan Rome, absolutely. So Satan, the dragon, is not just a symbol for Satan, but is also a symbol for the powers that he's working through. For example, uh, very brief, Jeremiah 51, verse 34 says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me, hath crushed me. Who's he speaking of? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He hath made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a what? A dragon. So he's comparing. He said, Babylon's like a dragon. Here's this in Ezekiel uh, 29. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The, what? The great dragon that lies in the midst of the rivers. So in the Old Testament, we see Babylon being like a dragon. We see Egypt being a great dragon. In the Bible, Powers that are used to persecute God's people by Satan are often called dragons. So we see that taking place here when we get to Revelation and chapter 13, 12 and 13. So um, it's interesting then, if the dragon gives his power, seat, and authority, and that's pagan Rome, that means this beast receives its power, seat, and authority from pagan Rome. And I just put a date in there. Here's why I put a date in there. Pagan Rome kind of went off the scene 476-ish A.D., okay? It's no longer a major power. It was kind of broke up into many of the Germanic tribes that were in Europe. Um, so that is interesting to note. If the power is given to it, it's going to be probably after the demise of it. It's not going to keep its power and give away its power at the same time. It's giving its power away, and it's ceasing to exist. All right. It speaks great things and blasphemy. I looked for a picture for this this morning. <laughs> Sorry. I, I should have just wrote lie there or something like that. But um, speaks great things and blasphemy. What is blasphemy, biblically speaking? In John chapter 10, and you can turn there if you would like, I'm just going to tell you briefly this story. This is the Feast of Dedication. This is about three months before Jesus' crucifixion. And as he is there, he says, I and my Father are one. Can Jesus say that? Absolutely. But they got mad and they picked up stones to stone. He goes, what are you stoning me for? What good work am I getting stoned for? They're like, we're not stoning you for a good work. We're stoning because you, a man, has made yourself to be God, and that is blasphemy. That is John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. Check paraphrase. So that is what's taking place there. Blasphemy, claiming to be God. And then Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, we'll look at this story a little bit later. But uh, just simply put, Jesus forgives a man. And the Pharisees that were assembled there say, how can you forgive him? Actually, they didn't say it out loud. They said it in their minds. And Jesus looked at them and says, you know what? I can forgive him. They questioned him. They said, what you're doing is blasphemy. Well, can Jesus have, does Jesus forgive sins? Does he have that power? Absolutely, because he is God. So there is uh, clear things that come out here. However, if someone else were claiming to forgive sins and they weren't God, would you say that that was blasphemy? Biblically speaking, yes, uh, without a question. Uh, has authority for 42 months, all right? Put on your math hats for the next one minute. Can you hold on to it? We're, gonna, we're just going to go quickly through this. In a Bible, a Bible month is 30 days. We get this from Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. When you look at the flood, the flood started on the 17th day of the second month and continued to the 17th day of the seventh month. How many months is that? 
from the 17th day of the second month to the 17th day of the seventh month. From the second month to the seventh month is how many months? Five months, right on, thank you. And same passage says that the waters were there for 150 days. Oh, so 150 days equals five months. How many days to a month? 30, great, fantastic. So here we go. You have authority for 42 months. This sea beast has. That's 42 months of 30 days. That would be 1,260 days. Now in the Bible, one prophetic day equals one literal year. There's a couple passages that we use often. Here's one, Numbers 14:34. The spies after spying out Canaan came back and they said this. Uh, uh, they gave a negative report, 10 of them, a good report, two of them. They were then punished to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness, and this is why. After the number of days in which you searched out the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even 40 years. He said, you were searching for 40 days as spies, and you came back and gave a negative report, so you are now going to spend, instead of 40 days, you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness, a day for a year. Then Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, uh, Ezekiel is having to do a very interesting prophecy. You should check this out sometime, preferably after we finish today. It says, Thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. So when we look at that, quite simply put, 1260 days would give authority for 1260 years. So this sea beast would have authority over the earth for how many years? 1,260. All right. So this says it would war with the saints. Uh, I figure you know this, that saints are talking about God's people. But I didn't want to take it for granted. There's a few Bible texts that, and there's so many more, but just some on the screen. Uh, who are God's people in the passage we're looking at? Revelation 12 and Revelation chapter 13. Who are God's people? They're described in Revelation 12, 17. Here is the patience. Of, no, 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 no. I get Revelation 14 verse 12 messed up with Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, which was God's church, because a woman is a symbol of a church and Bible prophecy. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which do two things. Keep the commandments of God, yes, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So those are two things. Um, by the way, interesting to note, um, we will come to that. It's kind of depressing. Charlie, I'm really glad that you've agreed to share the hope-filled passage in the middle of Revelation 13 and two weeks from now. So. But there's a lot of negative things taking place towards God's people, persecution, etc. But I, if you don't mind turning with me to Daniel chapter 7. See, Daniel 7 actually is talking about a, an antichrist power at the end of time who persecutes God's people. And in Daniel 7, something very special is spelled out. Chapter 7, verse 21. Chapter 7, verse 21 of Daniel 7. It says, I was watching. This is Daniel speaking. And the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So this is an encouraging thing. There is an enemy fighting against God's people and he's prevailing. He's winning. Negative. Then it says this in verse 22. Until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. When you go through difficulty, and I want to just remind you because this day is maybe not too far. But when you're going through difficulty because of your belief in Jesus Christ, because of your determination to stand for him out of a heart of love and obey him, when you're facing that and you're going through difficulty, the good news is this. Judgment will be made in favor of you. That means in the judgment, you will be cleared because of Jesus Christ. And it says the saints will receive the kingdom. 
Difficult days are ahead. According to this prophecy, difficult days are ahead. But the good news to remember the whole way through is God is still in the sanctuary above and he's still judging on my behalf. Praise God. So the next point that we see here is some final identifiers. I didn't go through all of them for sake of time, but here they are. We're going to receive a deadly wound and it is healed. Next one. It would have authority over all the earth. And the last point here, all the earth marvels and worships. I thank you for, uh, you don't mind me doing an overview instead of going through. Uh, we should probably have a, a revelation class sometime where we take hours per verse, but we don't have that today. There's, uh, at this point, I'd like to just do a little bit of a bridge between this and our next section. Here's some things that we do know. This is a religious kingdom. Why do I call it a religious kingdom just off the bat like that? Well, if you're a kingdom that is demanding worship, that's religious. If you're a kingdom that's persecuting, please don't miss this point. I just heard it this week. It was mind-blowing to me. If you're a kingdom that's persecuting God's people, it's because you yourself are a religious power. See, a secular power can make life miserable for everybody. But when a power singles out God's people, it's because it's an opposing religious force. Okay? That's the situation. Um, you know, there, there are some rough governments out there just make it miserable for everybody. You don't want to live there? No, there, neither do I. But there are some governments that simply make it difficult for people who believe differently than them. And when you have that, that's persecution in a very interesting way. Next, number two, it came to a political power in a highly populated area. Now, I kind of went quickly on this when we looked at it before, but the beast came up out of the sea. The sea represents multitudes, peoples, nations, tongues. And so this beast or kingdom is going to come up in a place where there's a lot of people, multitudes, peoples, tongues. Number three, came to political power after the decline of the pagan Roman Empire. So, and the reason we, we see that is the pagan Roman Empire gives its power and authority to the beast, that kingdom. So they don't have it. Now the beast has it. Uh, they're no longer in power. So that would be sometime after 8476. Uh, those of you who like studying history, uh, European history, find this fascinating. Number four received its power, seat, and authority from pagan Rome. Um, we looked at that. Claims to be God and that it has the power to forgive sins. Number six, persecuted those who were followers of God. Number seven, ruled for 1,260 years. Number eight, looked like it had died and came back to power. Number nine, authority over all the earth. And that's going to be more fully seen at the end of time. So, Wow. Religious kingdom came up in a populated area after the decline of the Roman Empire, received power from the pagan Rome, claims to be God, has the power to forgive sins, persecutes those who were followers of God, rules for 1,260 years, looks like it died and came back to power, has authority over all the earth. You know what? Who is this? If you're a student of history, specifically European history, because that's where the pagan Rome used to be, right? you're going to realize instantly that all these points point to one direction, and that is the medieval Roman church um, or the papacy. Now, when I say this, I want to be as clear as I can. Um, we are not talking about individuals. Um, I heard this expressed, uh, was it last week? Josh, I think I heard you say it. Excellent. I really like the way you say it. You know, I may not like the government of a country, but that doesn't mean I don't like the people in the country, Right? And it doesn't mean that the people in the country necessarily believe what the government of the country is doing. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so in this situation, there's a lot of people who are connected uh, underneath the authority, the umbrella of authority of the papacy, who may, not even disagree, may even disagree with some of the things that are being done, or they're individuals. They're not the government. So I want to just look at this one step at a time. Is the papacy a religious kingdom? Absolutely. In fact, it is a kingdom without question. Um, 
Did you know that there is, uh, and I'm looking at my, it is part of a city called Vatican City. It's one of the smallest city-states in the world. It has its own army, has its own ambassadors. Um, its, its holdings are simply theirs. They don't belong to any other country. They belong to themselves. So that's uh, important. It rose in the midst of the Mediterranean area, one of the most highly populated places on our planet at that time. Um, so definitely fits that. Next one. It would come up after pagan Rome, uh, which was in 476. I have a few quotations from history. Um, actually, a lot of these quotations are actually from uh, Roman Catholic writings. So I'm trying to get information from sources. The only thing is, um, yeah, so it's good to get it from, from people who are in agreement with us. To the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. So um, those of you who are familiar with European history, that's kind of how it happened. Uh, papal rights and privileges. When the Roman Empire became Christian and the peace of the earth was guaranteed, church was guaranteed, the emperor left Rome to the pope to be the seat of the authority of the vicar of Christ, who should reign there independent of all human authority to the consummation of ages to the end of all time. Uh, here's another quotation by Pope Pius IX. It is therefore by a particular decree of divine providence that at the fall of the Roman Empire in its partition into separate kingdoms, the Roman pontiff, whom Christ made the head and center of his entire church, acquired civil power. So there is some clear statements being made from history. Okay, there has been a change. Now there is a power that this church has. It's not simply spiritual, but it's also civil power. Or you would call it temporal power or political power. All right. Uh, received power from Rome. This ties in with it. Uh, Stanley's History, page 40, says, The popes filled the place of the vacant emperors of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. You know, um, you may have heard the title Pontifex Maximus. That title actually was, did not originate in, in, in the church. It originated in pagan Rome, and then it was accepted by the church. And so they accepted that title. Uh, even some of the clothes um, that are worn are a transfer from what used to be worn in pagan rites. Those same exact clothes were being used in Christian rites. Uh, even statues. Some of you are familiar with, if you go to Europe and you go to Vatican City, there's something called the Statue of St. Peter. The Statue of St. Peter actually was a statue of Jupiter. But it was christened and made a Christian one. So the reason I'm bringing this out is there is a transferring from the pagan world into this church at this time. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. Very graphic words being used there. Um, blasphemous claims. Uh, these are some claims. Again, I am sharing information that is shared by uh, papal educators. Uh, the only difference is they agree with it, and biblically I don't. So this is something that they feel. Uh, thou art the shepherd, thou art the director, thou art the husbandman. Finally, thou art another God on earth. This is speaking of the Pope. Here's another one. On April 30, 1922, Pope Pius XI said, You know that I am the Holy Father, the representative of God on earth, the vicar of Christ, which means that I am God on earth. Here's another statement. All the names which in the scriptures are applied to Christ by virtue of what is established that he is over the church, all the same names are apply to the Pope. That means we call Jesus Emmanuel. Yes, we could call the Pope Emmanuel. We call Jesus the light of the world. We call it the Pope the light of the world. You understand what I'm saying? This is the context. All right. And what about the idea of being able to forgive sins? This is uh, from duties and dignities and duties of the priest. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. Wait a minute. So God has to do what the priest says. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. And this is a teaching of, of this political power, religious political power. Um, Pope John Paul II on Tuesday told Roman Catholics, of course, this is a few years back, 
told Roman Catholics to seek forgiveness through the church and not directly from God. The requirement for confessing sin through priests is one of the fundamental principles of Roman Catholicism. Uh, that's a strong statement. However, I, I remember sharing this message, uh, something similar, many years ago in Washington State. And I had a young lady who came up to me. She said, Chuck, you are wrong. What you said last night was wrong. I said, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm just quoting what is said by the church themselves. I'm not, I'm not taking what enemies say. I'm saying what they say. She goes, my church isn't that way. I said, okay. So she invited me to come to her Catholic church. And I went Sunday morning. And I walked in with my Bible, all dressed up in my suit, sat down in the back row, and uh, the priest was preaching, and he said, you must pray to Jesus Christ, and he will save you. And I said, amen, which I realized that I was the only one who said amen. Why am I telling you this story? There are Catholic churches here in the United States who are teaching that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. And I say amen. What I'm teaching you, though, and sharing with you is this is the official teachings of the official church that match what we're seeing in prophecy. So I'm wanting to be clear with that. And by the way, um, I'm so thankful that that priest was sharing what he was sharing. He was leading his flock to Jesus Christ. And I say amen. If you look at the medieval Roman church, you will notice that persecution, unfortunately, is part of its history. By the way, unless we get too excited, persecution and killing people who didn't agree with you was something that almost everyone was doing at this time. I want to be clear about that, okay? Um, unfortunately, if you look at your history, Protestants have done their fair share of it. But what we're looking at here is this specific description. Let's look at it. Western Watchman, a Catholic periodical, said this, the church has persecuted. Only a tyro in church history will deny that. Someone who is ignorant in church history. There's the only people who would say that they haven't persecuted. Uh, this is uh, from a Newsweek article. Sounding more serious themes in a gathering of academicians, John Paul did what no pope had ever done. He publicly acknowledged the errors and excesses of the Spanish Inquisition, which tortured and burned heretics, Jews, and other false converts to the faith. Wow. Uh, I, again, I, I applaud the honesty that we see taking place here. Public ecclesiastical law, this is Catholic. The church may by divine right confiscate the property of heretics, imprison their persons, and condemn them to the flames. So this is still in public law. Now, in case you're wondering how much longer we will go with this, I'm just about to finish up a few details here. And then we're going to see a beautiful third portion that's going to help us see the Christ in Revelation chapter 13. So hold on is what I'm just sharing. All right. Ruled for 1260 years in the history of the Christian church. It says the papacy's power became supreme in Christendom in 538 due to a letter of the Roman emperor Justinian known as Justinian's decree, which set up and acknowledged the bishop of Rome as the head of all churches. It gave the papacy political power, civil power, as well as ecclesiastical power. This letter became part of Justinian's code, the fundamental law of the empire, and that year, Pope Vigilus ascended the throne under the military protection of Belisarius. Uh, what year was that? 538. If you take 1260 years and go from 538, you will come to the year 1798. Something very interesting. There was a gentleman by the name of Berthier. Uh, Berthier actually was a French general who had his first major tour of service in a place called the 13 colonies, before they became the United States. He was a cartographer. That means his job was drawing maps. And if any of you have looked at some old maps that were in your history books, Berthier might have been one, of, one who drew them up. Very interesting man. Berthier was asked by Napoleon uh, to do something interesting. Um, a murder of Frenchmen in Rome in 1798, gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city, that's what they called Rome, and putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile in Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. 
the last pope, they declared, had reigned. See, what was happening with the French was, was, was getting international attention, worldwide attention. They were having a revolution taking over, uh, completely dis disposing of the monarchy. It was something that was attracting the attention of everyone. In addition, they were also trying to get rid of God. And in that process, they wanted to remove anything that was connected with religion. And of course, that would involve the papacy and anything that was connected with that. Um, notice how it was thought of here. This is from uh, the modern papacy by Reverend Joseph Rickaby. It's an article that he wrote, the first page of that article. Berthier entered Rome on the 10th of February, 1798, and proclaimed a republic. Half Europe thought Napoleon's veto would be obeyed and that the Pope with, excuse me, with the Pope, the papacy was dead. There was a thought that, okay, this church is no longer going to survive. It can't survive this. Well, they were wrong because it could. Uh, it had a wound that looked like it was deadly, but it was going to be healed. It says in 1798, he birthed the air. This is from the Encyclopedia Americana. Made his interest into Rome, abolished the papal government, and established a secular one. Within a few years, a pope was reinstated, and the wound began to be healed. 1929, there was an agreement between Mussolini and Cardinal Gaspari. It says, in the Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy, and affixing the autographs through the memorable document, healing the wound, extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. And it's interesting how the San Francisco Chronicle actually used the phrase healing the wound. I don't believe the wound is healed, but I believe it's being healed. Um, there, is, there is more healing that's taking place. And those of you who are students of history, students of prophecy, will recognize it's, uh, it's more healed than it's been in a long time. So how about it being a worldwide power? Uh, some of you may be aware of the fact that um, the Vatican City Papacy maintains formal diplomatic relations with 177 sovereign states. There is no other religious leader in the world that has more respect and power than the Pope, who is the head of the papacy. So there's just some things to be sharing. So what have I just walked through? We have just gone through and said, okay, here's some identifying marks that have come out in Revelation 13. We looked at nine of them. And surprisingly enough, there's actually a power that fits. There is no other kingdom that gets close to fulfilling all of these. A miracle? No. It's called inspiration. The Bible's inspired, and you and I can trust the prophecies for what they say. You know, there is um, a few more slides. I'm going to just go through these, and i like to, to finish up. You know what? I realize that I have these little transitions that are going to just take a little bit of time. These are just some, some articles talking about our current pope, Pope Francis, and uh, he has made a big splash on the world scene and still is if any of you are paying attention to what is taking place. Um, <laughs> that last article that just came up from Rolling Stones, Pope Francis, the times are changing. And uh, there is no question about that. All right. I'd like to finish uh, with this last section, Christ versus the Antichrist. So when you looked at this list, one thing that came out was that it would have seven heads and 10 horns and 10 crowns upon its horns. So how many crowns does it have? 10. Would you say it has many crowns? It does. That's many crowns. Do you realize that the person who truly does have many crowns is Jesus Christ? Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. It describes this picture. Jesus, when he comes, verse 12 says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This is Revelation 19. And on his head were what? Many crowns. Why? Because Jesus is king over all. It's, you know, the kingdoms of this world, the Bible says, will become the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ. They're not going to remain in the power of 
fickle human beings. They're going to belong to God. And when you see Jesus with many crowns, it's a sign to us he will be truly the controller of all things. He is the king of kings. You know, humans are faulty. I don't want a human in charge of many crowns. But God doesn't make mistakes. We can trust him. The next thing that we see in this is the dragon gave, pagan Rome gave this other political power, the papacy, power, seat, and authority. But where does Jesus get his power from? All power has been given unto me. Isn't that right? Um, He received it from his father. Jesus has all power. Not just power, all power. In the end of the world that you and I are starting to draw close to, we must remember that Jesus is king of kings. There is nothing that's not under his control. You know what the Bible says in Daniel 2? It says, I raise up kings and I remove kings. He's in charge. Other thing that we know is this. He is the one with all power. Next. I I love this. I put this picture here. There were four friends. And please don't miss this. Four friends saw their other friend who could not walk. And they said, we need to get you to Jesus. Could the palsied man, the man who could not walk, could he get to Jesus by himself? No, he needed how many friends? Four friends. You know, there are some friends of yours who are not going to come to Jesus just by themselves. There's going to be some friends of yours who are going to need you to get an intervene in their lives. So they bring him to Jesus, and they come to Jesus, and the crowd is so pressing, they can't get in. So you know the story. They climb up on the roof. They take the, the tiles off the roof. They get a hole. They drop the palsy man down into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at that man, and that man looks at Jesus. That man is feeling his sin. He's recognizing that a lot of the problems he's had in his life is because of him. By the way, when you and I come into the presence of Jesus, I think it's sometimes something we realize too. A lot of the things we face isn't because of other people. It's because of us. And he's recognizing that. And as he's laying there, Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus does that today for you and for me. There's no human being on earth has the power to forgive our sins because no human being on earth has paid the penalty for our sins. Only Jesus can. In the end of time and in the time of the end, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Recognize he's king of kings. Recognize he has all power. Recognize that in Jesus is true forgiveness of sin. If you're holding on to something, it's time to give it to him. If you're still letting a sin have a grip in your life, say, I don't want that anymore. Let Jesus do a miracle in your life like he did in this paralytic. There's something else about Jesus. I find this interesting, just an interesting fact, and I'll continue. How long was the reigning power of that sea beast in the Middle Ages? 1,260 days. If you actually were to do some more math, just because I know you love doing math, right? 42 months is three and a half years. And Jesus, when he reigned on our planet, not reigned, but when he had his public ministry on our planet, had his public ministry of three and a half years. This, I find it really interesting. This sea beast is truly a power that's trying to take the place of Christ in so many ways. Here's another point. Um, I was looking for a picture, and when I found this picture this morning, I was thrilled. It's not a, it, it, I don't know if you see what's taking place. You see there's a, a, a man that's being beaten there by a Roman soldier. And who's in the background? See, there is persecution that takes place of God's people. You and I both know it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why when we were studying Revelation, the the seals, remember there's the souls under the altar crying out, how long until you avenge our blood? When Jesus' people are persecuted, 
Jesus is also persecuted. He's there. He recognizes what's being faced. Matthew 25, 40 says, Inasmuch as you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When you treat them nice, you're treating God nice. But when you persecute God's people, you're persecuting Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus feels your pain when you're being persecuted. The next point here, and that is, you know, it says that the Antichrist receives a deadly wound. Jesus received the deadly wound. He tasted of the second death for you and for me. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, and for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us are worthy of death. But Jesus had that death for you and I. He truly died the death. The sea beast is just an imitation of who Christ is. What happened after the sea beast received the deadly wound? It was healed. And likewise, Jesus was resurrected. See, Jesus was the original. The sea beast follows and tries to imitate. But the sea beast is the original. Um, By the way, why was Jesus resurrected? I mean, I, I know it's obvious, but you know the Bible says Jesus was resurrected for our salvation? Uh, that's Hebrews chapter 9, excuse me, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was resurrected for our salvation. I have text with all of these. Again, if any of you are interested, let me know. So let's look at this last one. Two more. Authority over every nation, tongue, and people is what the Antichrist has at the end of time. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is the one, truly, who is in charge of the whole planet. And he has a message, a gospel message, that's going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In fact, the same exact wording you find in Revelation 13 discussing the power of the beast is the same place the gospel's going in Revelation 14. And this last one. How much of the world worships the beast? All the world. That's right. But you know what it says in Philippians chapter 2? Can you turn with me? Philippians chapter 2. And we will look at verse 10. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10. Speaking of the end of time, because this time is still yet to come, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, God the Father. There is coming a day when it's going to seem like all the world is worshiping the beast except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But there will come a day when every knee Righteous and unrighteous will kneel before God and say, you are God. You're worthy. That day's coming. You will say those words. Whether you are for God or against God, every single human being will kneel down and say, God, you're worthy. What an incredible thought. You have a God who's in charge of everything. You have a Christ who's all-powerful. You have a Christ who can forgive any sin. You have a Christ who even when you're persecuted, he's persecuted too. And you have a Christ who ultimately is going to be the one at the end of time that every knee will bow down to. There's a story that's told um, of a circus performer named Otto Witt. Otto Witt was a circus performer, and uh, this was at the time just around World War I. He, he, some of his friends looked at him and said, you know, you look like Prince Adin of Alba- Albania. He said, really? And then he had this great idea. See, what happened is they just lost the king, and Prince Adin was going to go and become king of this other place. 
by the way, this story is found in a Time News article of about 50 years ago. Great one. Um, and so Otto Witt thought, let me do a little bit of a surprise. So what he did is he pretended that he was Prince Adine. He showed up in a royal fanfare. He had people looking at him and saying, oh, Prince Adine, because he looked like Prince Adine. And you know, those days you don't necessarily are sharing uh, news clips via smartphones, right? And so it's easier to fool people. And so he fools them. And he has this great thing going, Otto Witt. And for five days, he has this tremendous kingship. Uh, he does some crazy things, uh, uses some money, talks about declaring war on another nation, makes everybody happy. They think he's the best. And all of a sudden, news filters down. Prince Adine is on his way. And they say, wait, 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 wait. Who's this then? And Otto Witt, in describing this many, many years later, said, I decided it was time for me to go so there was no bloodshed. <laughs> I would agree. His. Otto Witt, um, uh, still, to the time of his death, 50, 60 years later, was still talking about his kingship for a short time. Uh, very, very neat story, very neat guy. However, you know what? There is someone who would love to get into your life and be king other than Jesus. Even if it's only for a few days. But I tell you, there's only one king worth having, and that's King Jesus. He's the only king worth having in charge of your life because he's the one that's all powerful. He's the one who's truly the king of all things. He's the one who can be king of your heart. I have a question today. Would you want the true Christ of Revelation, to be your king? I do. I want him to come in. Can we pray? Father in heaven, we have perused history. We've looked at prophecy. We've been told about some deception that's going to come up at the end of time and has already come up. But most importantly, we've seen that you are the king. And it's from you we can expect true salvation. Please, Father, come be king of our hearts. Fill us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.